Okay, this is the part part two of the um, fluid class. So it's hoping, hoping, hoping that this will work. When I last saw you, we started talking about all the different kinds of uh, fluid deficits and excesses that you can have. We uh, started talking about how IV, how you can rehydrate for for deficits, and we talked about oral rehydration uh, and how that's figured. And now we're going to start talking about IV. This is where I left off, right? Is that am I correct? Okay. Okay. It was. Did we do that? Yeah, that, I think that was the last slide I did, and then we went, then we went to this. Um, keep in mind, a fluid, fluid IV replacement is, is done by the physician. It is just like a medication order in that it's your responsibility to check the order to be sure that the uh, type of fluid is ordered and the, the uh, rate is ordered. You need both of those things in an order. Generally, it is not your um, responsibility to be changing any fluids or changing any rates. Uh, you can in, in, in uh, some problem situations, which we'll be talking about in a few minutes, you can stop an IV or if you really know that somebody is uh, uh, in a situation where they need more, f more fluid and it's an emergency, you can turn up the fluid volume, but generally uh, it should, it's only supposed to be done with a physician's um, order. So physicians figure out what, how much fluid you need by figuring out what your uh, maintenance fluid requirements are and then adding in what they think your deficit is. Uh, it's, it's a, sometimes it's a bit of a guessing game. Um, they will figure out how much uh, sodium chloride you need in the, in the solution, uh, often based on your serum uh, sodium levels. Uh, so if you're low, they might be giving you some higher, higher um, fluid, higher uh, amounts of sodium. They usually use either an isotonic or a mildly hypertonic solution so that fluid then goes into the cells where it belongs. Um, you might see something like 5% uh, dextrose and 0.9% uh, NaCl, 0.9% would be, is called normal saline. Normal saline, that's uh, generally equivalent to the uh, sodium level in our blood. But we tend not to give, um, actually at normal saline, we give increments of it. And the common increments you'll see would be 0 0.45, 0 0.2, or 0.225, or 0.3. These are usually referred to as half normal saline. You know, 45 is half of 90, right? So if somebody says to you, go get a bag of D5 and a half, you go into the IV room or the bag, and you look at the bags, and not one of them says half normal saline on it. What you have to recognize is that it's 0.45%. So make sure you understand that. A lot of errors get made. Last night on 60 minutes. There was a, I don't know if anybody saw it, but uh, Dennis Quaid's uh, had twins that had been given heparin, regular full strain therapeutic heparin instead of a HEPLOC solution, which is a thousandth of the uh, percentage. And uh, so the, the, the kids nearly bled out 
getting it. And a lot of it, and what it came down to was a nurse that didn't look at the label. So the same thing with IV fluids. You have to look at the label, make sure that what is ordered is what is hanging. Very often people will grab the wrong bag, they don't think about, they don't, they don't look closely at that, and uh, they, they pick the wrong thing. Um, so make sure you understand that. Uh, usually with an isotonic solution uh, mean, means that uh, on the bag, if you look on the bag, you will see uh, a label that shows how many milliosmoles there are in the bag, how many milliosmoles per liter. Um, you're trying to find something between 240 and 340 is considered iso isotonic. Um, if it is hypertonic, it's going to be greater than, than 340. And if, if it goes along too long, hello. <laughs> Don't, are we going to have the blinking lights again? Some of the rooms, the lights just keep going off and on as you sit there. Uh, at, it'll, it'll, if, it, if it's too high of a solution, it'll draw cells, it'll draw cells, um, fluid from the cells into the, into the plasma. How do you figure maintenance fluids? Well, with kids, what we do is look at their initial weight. So up to 10 kilo, kilos, you just do 100 milligrams per kilogram. Between 10 to 20, you just take a liter, and then you give them 50 per every kilogram that's over 10. And if they're over 20, you figure it's 1,500 over, and then 20 milliliters for every kilogram over 20. Do you understand where, how, how that's done? So if you were 11 kilos, what would be your maintenance fluids for the day? 10, 10, 50, right. And if you were 21 kilos, what, how much fluid would you need in a day? 1520, does everybody see, see that? So then you, you want to know the rate, then you just divide that by 24, and that's your hourly rate. So if you're trying to figure out how much fluid is being ordered, how much is given per day, uh, that's a way to, to figure it out. Uh, if somebody has a fever, your fluid incre needs increase, and uh, so you, they go by up 10% for every one degree over 37 that you are. So if you've got somebody who's feverish, that you're, you may see more fluid than just the, uh, just the maintenance. Now keep in mind, this is just for maintenance. As I said, if somebody is in a deficit, the physicians will often order the maintenance plus the deficit. So if they think you're down by a liter, and, and, and they figured out that you need 1,500, they'll, they'll order 2,500 over a day, and then, so you're gonna be, that's over, over 100 cc's um, per hour. Okay, the, our main role isn't really in figuring out how much fluid or you, that you, or what type of fluid to give and worrying about the nuances of that because that's not really your responsibility at, at this level but it is your responsibility for knowing how to administer it, and that's what we're gonna focus on. Uh, I told you about knowing the right type, the right rate, the, and uh, how much fluid has gone in, how much fluid is left to go in that, in that bag. A lot of times what they might, uh, physician orders might be written to give 
instead of giving you an hourly rate, they may say give two liters over uh, 18 hours or something like that. So then you have to figure out what the, what the rate is. But the, what they're telling you is that, that the, after that amount of fluid has gone in, another fluid order will be written. And they do that so that you're not, so the person isn't getting continuous high fluids um, over an, unexten an extended period of time uh, in case that order doesn't get, doesn't get written. It sort of forces the physician to re-examine uh, the patient's hydration status and then write a new IV order. Uh, you should develop some kind of habit for checking your IVs when you get your patient. Usually what I do is start at the bag, look at the fluid, look at the, then go down to the pump, look at the rate, make sure that everything is in place and running. Sometimes uh, tubes will leak, uh, some of the old uh, some of the older uh, cassette things can pop out and look like they're running and even though they're not, they're, so they're not actually flowing. You may be in some places where they're using gravity and so you need to look at the drip rate and then know if that's going, if it's dripping at the rate that's expected. Gravity drips are notoriously inaccurate because often as a person raises or lowers their arm, it's going to raise or increase the rate. Um, if they move their hand like this, so they have an IV in there, that can change the rate. All kinds of things can happen with uh, gravity. In pediatric settings, we tend to only use pumps, and there's not only in an emergency situation would you ever use gravity. So we always use pumps, and a big reason is so that the children do not get fluid overload. One of the problems with gravity is is that people, if it gets to, if it begins to slow down, people tend to. Um, roll the little ball, the little uh, glider thing up so that it flows faster and then the person moves their arm down and now all of a sudden the IV fluid is all running, is running in really, really fast. Um, some other things that we do in pediatrics is never hang more than 500 cc bag at a time. Uh, you know, in adults you're usually used to seeing a liter. A lot of times in pediatric settings just to prevent any kind of errors from occurring they'll put 500. Now with a baby that even 500 could be too much. Uh, but for an average child, 500 they can probably handle, but it's safer to have that happen than to have a whole, a whole liter. But generally with the pumps, uh, that kind of thing isn't going to happen. It's a lot, uh, but sometimes I've seen situations where patients or other kids visiting the room change the rate. So you've got it set to 80, and then somebody comes along and says, oh, look at the pretty arrows. Boop, 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 boop. Now it's going at 380 uh, and uh, blasting, blasting away. And if the IV doesn't blow, uh, they're getting uh, a, whole, a heck of a lot more fluid than they're supposed to have. Um, some pumps are, are set so that you have to go through an extra step to change things so that that kind of accidental change doesn't occur. You should, as you go down the line, then you also want to be looking at the IV site. And what you're looking for is any signs of complications with the IV site. Uh, some people, depending on their health status, ha can have very fragile IVs, IVs that can blow very easily. Uh, don't assume that because it's running one hour, that it'll be running the next hour that you look at it. Also investigate any kind of claims that somebody says it, it hurts, feels cold, uh, feels warm, any kind of changes in, in, that are reported, you want to look and check those immediately. So you want to I'll show you some things that can happen with the, with the IVs. Uh, one of the more common things is an infiltration. Uh, in an infiltration, what's happening is you have, here's the skin, 
and here's a blood vessel going by and the IV needle goes through the skin like that. And if all goes well, the fluid, the fluid flows in. But sometimes what happens is this needle goes through and starts pouring out fluid outside of the blood vessel. That's an infiltration. So it's now going into that extracellular space between the cells and out, but outside of the outside of a blood vessel. So the fluid will flow, continue to flow in there, and uh, will get puffy. Can you see that picture? Let me turn the light off for a second, and you can get a better look at that. You can see see how puffy the arm is here. This is after the infiltration. They've taken the taken the IV out here and put a Band-Aid on it. Look at the patient's ID band. Show you how puffy they are. That was fitting loosely beforehand, and then what? So what happened is the IV pump continued to pump, and so now what you've got is a, essentially a localized edema. You've got fluid that needs to be resorbed. It's under the skin. If it's a small amount and and it's handled properly, it's really not a big problem. It will, the, the fluid will resorb. It will be, eventually goes back through the capillaries and goes back into the, into the body. It takes a little while depending on how much fluid is in there. Most IV pumps don't allow that kind of infiltration to occur because more modern pumps have uh, a back pressure sensors. So that usually what happens is once uh, a needle goes through the skin like that and is now in the interstitial space, there's going to be more back pressure because it's not flowing into a hose of fluid that's flying by. It's flowing into a more of a fixed uh, area. And so there's a little back pressure sensor that will turn your alarm on and you'll see the, the IV keeps beeping and it'll say, it'll usually say occlusion or something like that that means that, that the fluid is not pumping. That's not your time to then go change the, increase the back pressure so we pump it through. Um, you really have to make sure and see what's happening. The problem is once it infiltrates, that's the end of that IV. You can't, you can't use it anymore. Um, and your responsibility is just to uh, DC it. Uh, a new IV is going to be needed. Uh, physicians should be contacted because it is a change in the patient's condition. The pr probably, they, in, in some cases, if the, flu if the patient is considered adequately hydrated or they think that maybe the patient can uh, drink enough PO fluid on their own, it's a couple days post-op, for example, they might say, just forget it, don't, don't bother starting the IV again. Uh, if it's more critical, more, more recent post-op experience time, then they're going to say re it'll have to be restarted. One of the things to keep in mind, too, when you're in the, if you're in the position of starting IVs, you should always start peripherally and then, and then work towards the body. And the reason for that is so that if an IV does go, you now can, you can use parts then that are more proximal. Uh, to, the, to the body. So if you start up here, for example, with an antecubital, a lot of nurses say, well, this is real easy, and they'll put an IV in there. That's great, but if that blows, now you can't use anything distal to that site until this is healed, until that infiltration is healed. So keep that in mind. Always start, uh, start distally and then work uh, towards, the, towards the body. 
uh, a lot of times you're going to have people tell you to, you know, elevate and do all kinds of things to help. And studies have shown that that's pretty ineffective for reducing uh, the infiltration. Pretty much just time is the only thing that's going to help that fluid resorb. Now, here's a more serious problem. Now, regular IV fluid, as I said, is generally isotonic, and so it's not going to be that terrible on the skin. The problem is a lot of times what's going through IVs are things that are very hypertonic, things that are very caustic, uh, a lot of antibiotics, a lot of chemotherapies, for example, uh, are described as vesicants, meaning that they will, they can destroy tissue. And you get what's called extravasation. And you can see here that this was an IV, uh, an IV of a, a very caustic uh, antibiotic that was left to infiltrate. It went into the, into this uh, extracellular fluid and then started breaking down the tissue for a long time before anybody noticed it. This is another reason why you check an IV, you sh should be checking your IV's sites every hour. It only takes a few seconds to look, at the, to look at the site and that should be part of your regular nursing care. A lot of, a lot of places will, hang, will look at, hang IVs for like eight hours at a time and a lot of times nobody will look in some settings, nobody even looks at the IV for six or eight hours at a time. And this is one of the reasons why you don't let that happen. So particularly if you have anybody who's getting any kind of uh, chemicals that are at being added to their IV solution to be like an antibiotic that's run over uh, a short period of time, or particularly chemotherapies, you do this. In fact, one of the reasons uh, when we start talking about uh, patients with cancer, you will find that they often get some kind of central line put in. They'll either get a sub subclavian line or they get what's called a peripherally inserted uh, central catheter, which is called a PIC line that goes up the arm and then closer to the heart. Because what you're doing is putting, a, putting the IV needle into a much thicker blood vessel where instead of having something that's the diameter of a pencil lead, you're putting something more that's the diameter of maybe your little finger. Uh, so that it's kind of like the difference between pouring a chemical into a little tiny trickle of a creek or pouring it into a river. You pour it into the river, it's going to get flushed through and going to get diluted. It's not as likely to harm the sides of the bank of the river. You put it into, if you poured a, a strong chemical into a little tiny creek, you can imagine that very quickly the sides of the creek and everything that's in that area there could get contaminated by that by that chemical. Same analogy here. So uh, you need to be very, very careful uh, when it comes to giving any kind of uh, drug, particularly antibiotics and chemotherapies. Now there's also phlebitis, which is an inflammation uh, that often occurs quite rapidly. If you look, it's a little hard to see, but you see this red line there? This is where the IV was inserted. And usually what you see is a red line that will start at the site and then run up the arm uh, towards, towards the body. And it's just a, a red inflammation. It's a warmth. Uh, it can be difficult sometimes to uh, assess on patients with darker skin color. So you, sometimes what you have to do is also be palpating the skin um, proximal to, this, to the IV insertion and feel for things like warmth, as well as you're looking, feeling for edema but another thing to feel for is any kind of warmth or either cold or, or warmth. 
A lot of times with infiltrations, it'll feel cold. And with, in, with phlebitis, it'll feel warm. Uh, again, the only thing you can do is DC the IV. That's the end of that IV. Um, and it's been suggested to apply warm, moist heat. Just keeps, uh, it seems to help reduce some of the um, inflammation. Um, Sometimes this is due to an infection. There can, there can be an infection there that's, that's occurring, and sometimes it's, it's more like a, almost like a, an allergic reaction and necessarily a, a, um, an, in, an infection. It's hard to, it can be hard to tell. This is act, an actual infection of an IV where you see the redness that's occurring uh, on, the whole, on the whole arm there. Uh, that usually occurs from uh, somebody either an IV that wasn't put in very cleanly uh, or a needle that was not, was not clean. Uh, or sometimes we have problems with patients that are touching or putting things in the IV or they, uh, they do things to contaminate the, the IV site. Uh, and again, your only uh, thing you can do is, is DC the IV. All right, any questions about IVs? Did you have a lab on this? Do you have an IV lab? It's coming, it's coming up. All right, so you'll be pros, you'll be pros when the IV lab uh, comes up. All IV pumps, uh, you're gonna see certain pumps in, in lab, and I guarantee you they'll be different wherever you work. In fact, right where we are now at the hospital that I'm at with my students, when we come back tomorrow, there's going to be all new pumps there. They've, they've just changed, changed the brands. They all work on the variation of the same theme of choosing a rate uh, and then having some kind of back pressure thing involved. These, the new, these new pumps that we're getting now, and this is probably a, a more modern trend, is that it will actually, you'll actually program in what's being put in. And it will then know that there are certain rates that have to be given of, of a low and a high parameter and won't let you without sounding an alarm that you've, if you've programmed a rate that's too low or too high for that, for that drug. Uh, extracellular excesses. Uh, that's where you get fluid both in the intravascular and the interstitial space. It usually comes from some, it's, it's a lot rarer than the deficits that we talked about. Some examples would be either having too much IV sodium being given, situations where you have too much aldosterone, uh, in congestive heart failure, fluid begins to back up into that space. Some renal disorders can cause it. Uh, disorders of, uh, of, the anti of ADH can cause that. Uh, you would see in your labs the, uh, the serum osmolality begins to go down, sodium goes down, BUN goes down, specific gravity all go, all go down because you've got too much fluid. How can you tell that if somebody, somebody has too much fluid, this is some of your signs that you would see? Uh, a key one is looking for distended neck veins. Uh, one of the reasons why you need to be listening to your patient's lung sounds on a regular basis is that if fluid is beginning to build up, and a lot of your elderly patients are, a lot of, time, a lot of them are really on the verge of, um, car with cardiac problems, uh, can begin to um, show early signs of failure by hearing 
crackles and wet sounds in the lungs. So it's real important to be listening, particularly your elderly patients, be listening to their, to their lung sounds on a regular basis and be listening for changes. So when you first get them, you want to get a baseline so you know what they sound like so that if there's any changes four hours later, or so you'll pick it up. Um, you're going to often see hypertension, and that's because you've got extra fluid that's, that's flowing through the, through the blood vessels, and often pulses are going to be bounding. You, sometimes people are, especially if they have very thin skin, you, can, you don't even have to palpate the pulse. You can see it. You'll see it pulse. Uh, weight gain, one of the things that we do with uh, people that are, we're worried about uh, gaining, gaining fluid, people are prone to edema, uh, retaining fluid, daily, daily weights, because it can give you an idea of of them retaining retaining fluid. Look at things like their eyelids for, for puffiness and also peripheral edema. So you want to be looking at, the, at the, the hands and often very often in the feet is where you're going to first see edema. So if people start complaining to you that their shoes are too tight or their rings are, are suddenly very, very tight, um, you start seeing the ID, the ID bracelet is a lot tighter than it used to be. These are clues to you that they're starting to get edematous. Um, there's different kinds of edema. You can just have generalized that goes through the whole body. Uh, very commonly, it's just going to be an extremity uh, where you're going to see something in the foot. You can see there, uh, that's called a pitting edema where you, where you push down on it. And, it, and you actually, the depression stays and then slowly comes, comes back. Uh, there's also pulmonary edema that particularly occurs in uh, cardiac failures where fluid then begins to back up into the, into the lungs. Uh, anybody who's immobile is going to be at risk for it. Um, sometimes from exposure to too much heat, a lot of these drugs that are listed here can cause it. Certain uh, types of malnutrition, uh, very often those that involve uh, protein balances uh, can cause edema imbalances. Uh, and also some blockages uh, of things that w within the body, certain clots, uh, venous trouble, valve problems, venous valve problems, uh, things like gout, lymphedema, or some other things that can cause blockages and, and edema. It's not our job to Figure, figure them out, but be aware that if you see anybody with these kind of things uh, as a diagnosis, be looking for something like edema. So how do you assess for edema? Well, you give it a little press. Uh, by definition, pitting is where that depression stays down there for more than 15 seconds. That's a long time. Uh, usually, most people will, if they see any kind of depression and it slowly fills, even if it takes less than 15 seconds, they're probably going to call it pitting edema, even though technically it needs to be longer. Um, another thing that's recommended is, and you'll, you'll, you might go to some places and some nurses may tell you to be calling by referring to it as plus one, plus two, plus three, or plus four. It's commonly used. What's the problem with that? What's the problem with using a number system like that? Exactly. Your definitions of one or two or three or four could vary depending on your experience with the edema. Um, you know, how do you how do you know if you've never seen it? Plus one might look very dramatic to you. 
if you're very used to it, you may be, you know, you might be better at, at making this kind of decision. But looking, even looking at this chart that I got out of a book here that tried to describe it, I have a hard time saying, okay, how would I know the difference? So the, the current research is saying really what you should be doing is measuring in millimeters how much edema there is. And how do you do that? Well, what you, the easy way to do it is you take a plastic ruler, thin, a thin one, and usually there's um, a little extra stuff that's added at the end of a ruler. Snip that off right at the zero line. And then just put, your, put that ruler into the pit and then try to look at the skin level and see how many mill millimeters of pitting that there, that there are and measure that, yeah. The circumference? Oh yeah, that's another thing, that's a good point. Yeah, another thing that's done is that you can measure their circumference of an ankle, or circumference of a foot. As long as everybody's measuring it at the same place, that's another, another good objective assessment that you can make. A lot of times if, if somebody has abdominal swelling, edema, edema in their abdomen, we'll do an abdominal girth uh, to measure, the, to see whether or not the swelling has actually gone down. That's a, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a good, another kind of measure. So think, whenever you've got patients who have got conditions like this, think of how can I objectively measure them so that the next, the next nurses coming along will be able to see if the things are getting better or getting, or getting worse and uh, try to stay away from things like the plus ones and the plus fours because that's really not recommended anymore. However, a lot of you are gonna be in settings where people will still do that. A lot of nurses have learned it this way and so don't be surprised when, they, when you hear that kind of uh, terminology used. But it's not recommended anymore. You know, that thing that was on 60 Minutes too last night reminded me of the fact that they were giving heparin lock solution to, with the, to the baby's IVs, and that's not really necessary. Studies have been shown for years that you just need, if you're, if you're re regularly flushing an IV, normal saline is just fine, and you have about the same clotting rates and problems that you do using heparin. And because of this kind, and these kind of problems are not new at all. I was really shocked to hear that this hospital was still using, not only were they using old stock that hadn't been fixed, but they were using um, doing a procedure that's been discredited by, by research. So. Uh, another thing that can occur is where you get fluid shifts, and this is where fluid is shifting in and out of the, uh, from the interstitial spaces into the, into the plasma and the other, and the other way around. Um, this is sometimes called third spacing. So you have this intravascular interstitial fluid shift. Uh, usually these, these are going to occur from things that change uh, capillary permeability. There's some uh, um, toxins from uh, infections that can cause it. Some of the like dengue fever and some of these weird uh, tropical diseases can change capillary permea permeability. Um, sometimes it's just as, a, as a, a part of the inflammatory response, fluids will Will be, will be shifting. And these often happen in cases of burns and, and sepsis. Uh, where this can occur most often is in the abdomen, the peritoneum, the lungs, and around the heart. So this, so this isn't usually, usually we f refer to these kinds of extracellular fluid shifts as being in more, usually confined to uh, more specific parts of the body 
where the other extracellular excesses that we were talking to tend to be more um, systemic throughout the body. So some signs and symptoms to be looking for, decreased level of consciousness, uh, pallor, uh, extremities getting cold. So, uh, you know, you have to, part, part of your uh, assessments when, you're, when, you're, when you have somebody with an IV uh, down here, you should also be checking uh, their, uh, do a neurovascular assessment. So what are part, what's part of the neurovascular assessment? I think we talked about that last time. Cap refill, what else are you checking for? Color. Pulses, yeah, you should be checking peripheral pulses. And sensation, right, because that's checking for the sensory nerve function. And what are the, what's the other nerve function? Hmm? Motor nerve function, so how do we check that? Wiggle, 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 okay. Wiggle your toes, wiggle your fingers if you can do that. So that's, that's, so the neurovascular, the vascular part is the capillary refill and it should be almost instantaneous. If it's taking longer than it takes you to say the words capillary refill, it's too long. Uh, and then by sensation, how can we uh, assess sensation? How would you assess sensation of somebody in their toes, let's say? Somebody in the back here. Maureen. Right, so what would you touch them with? You could use your finger, but actually a little better thing to do is just like take a paper clip or something like that and extend the end of it and then move it towards and move it away. Sometimes you touch, sometimes you don't. And so you'd say, do you feel that? And if they say no, you know they're telling the truth when you're not actually touching them. Because uh, a lot of times what happens is patients get used to it. They always say, do you feel that? And they just say yes, even though they're just, even though they may not, because they're just so used to answering the same question if they're getting repeated assessments. So you gotta kinda, kinda look like you're moving in, but don't actually touch them and see, and see if they're telling you when you're actually touching them. And then the movement. Now, if you've got somebody with a cast or something like that on, a lot of times you can't, you can't assess movement. Um, interesting where we, where we had um, bounding pulses. Sometimes you get um, weak pulses because the fluid is shifting, is shifting um, out of the bloodstream. And you also get allo, allegoria, or allegoria, where you're not, you're not peeing, which seems sometimes kind of counterintuitive. Uh, we'll talk about intracellular deficits, where, where the fluid actually inside the cells now is, is uh, in decline. But you're, if you looked at the, in, the, in the bloodstream, it might seem like you were, you were okay. It's very rare for that to happen. You have to have real high um, sodium levels plus dehydration. And these are the instances where it can occur with burn, surgery, sepsis. These are the uh, signs and symptoms, extreme thirst, fever, allegoria, confusion. Uh, it's, it's very, very rare. And an excess intracellular, where now fluid is going into the intracellular space. Remember we talked about that all of our blood values and everything are only checking what's in the pl blood plasma and that it's very hard to know what's actually going on in the, in the cells. Um, 
here are some cases where you can have intracellular fluid excesses where you have uh, water intoxication. Um, sometimes if people get too, uh, irrigated their NG with just plain t uh, tap water and that happens too much, you can get uh, an excess of fluid. Um, some people are into different kinds of enemas, and one kind is a tap water enema, and that'll actually, um, can, can, you'll, you'll be absorbing too much water. It's di diluting the solutes in the blood, which eventually leads to intercellular fluid excess. Uh, if you uh, have a deficit of electrolytes or proteins, remember we talked about some of the time, in some cases where you have a, a protein, you have a protein deficit and you would see a low albumin level in the blood, in the, in the lab values, uh, that, can, that can be an indication of, of a situation that's going to lead to a fluid excess. There is an increase of ADH. It's called SIADH syndrome of inappropriate ADH, which is an antidiuretic hormone. So you're, you're, uh, it's, the fluid is staying in you. Remember, a diuretic causes you to do what? Pee, right. Diuretic causes you to pee. So an antidiuretic causes you to not pee, right, retain fluid. And this can oddly can happen after a head injury. This is one of those things that sometimes people don't think about. Um, after a head injury, you're all interested in neuro, neurologic assessments and things like that. But one of the other things to look for is changes in urine output because they can sometimes cause the person to begin to retain fluid. Or to lose, or to lose fluid, or they'll start peeing like crazy. And kid, kidney problems, too. Uh, some signs and symptoms to be looking for: headache, nausea, vomiting, irritability. So you not notice that a lot of these a lot of these changes cause changes in um, behavior. So uh, a lot of times you'll see these things before you start seeing other signs. So if you have somebody who starts becoming who was pleasant before and starts to become irritable, somebody who starts becoming lethargic or drowsy, sometimes nurses don't notice that. They just say, "Well, he's just sleepy or whatever because of all he's been through." You got to be got to look out look out for that. Uh, things that can lead these can eventually lead to seizures, coma. Um, look for look for increases in systolic blood pressure, decreases in serum sodium, and decreases in hematocrit. <coughs> I think um, Chris is going to talk in more detail about this, but there's three D's that are involved with fluid overloads, and that's the use of diuretics, digitalis, and diet. Um, one of the things we try to do is keep, uh, if there's fluid overload, we'll, we uh, will try to raise where the, where the fluid is uh, above the, try to raise it above the heart, try to keep people moving. Uh, you, use things like compression stockings that sort of help get fluid back to the heart. Um, massaging of areas, distal, distal areas that are having, uh, that are having some uh, edema, uh, unless the person has blood clots. Uh, people who are overweight are going to have more, uh, are more prone to fluid overload, so just losing weight. And also, uh, Sometimes sodium restrictions, because if you have a, sodium in your diet, a lot of people, a little bit of 
a little too much salt, too much salt in their diet, they just retain fluid like crazy, so they try to restrict sodium. So I told you about the things that we we are set, that we've been assessing. So uh, eyes and O's we've talked about. Also be looking at that sodium intake. What are they eating? Sometimes that's hard to do because our, our American diet is so full of salt. So you have to really look look out for that. I told you about changes in mental status. Um, listening to the looking at changes in blood values and listening to those listening to those lungs if somebody's getting diuretics they need to do you need to do teaching about the proper way to get and to take those diuretics because there's different different diuretics have some different functions uh, for people with kidney problems keep in mind that diuretics don't restore kidney function they just help you uh, lose more f fluid usually there's increases of of water and and sodium, uh, but things like Lasix also cause you to lose potassium. And so anybody who's on Lasix, you have to make sure that they also are getting adequate potassium in their diet. A lot of the others, the potassium is not that critical. So you really make sure that don't fall into the trap that anybody on a diuretic also needs increased potassium. That's sometimes uh, a test question that, or a board type question that people forget. Uh, it's really Lasix is the, is the primary um, potassium-wasting diuretic. Um, now, diuretics can have a bunch of other side effects, and so you want to be teaching people to be looking for any kind of rashes or itching. Uh, because of the changes in fluid volume, they can get orthostatic hypotension, so they'll stand up and get dizzy uh, because they've changed, they're changing the amount of fluid that's, that's in, their, in their body. And because they are going to be peeing a lot, it, they, they are also more prone to dehydration. So it's important to get the right balance. So uh, they don't want to be drinking too much, but they also don't want to be losing fluid either. And you can get into electrolyte imbalances more because some of the diuretics cause you to lose sodium. Uh, also because you are losing, losing water uh, and, and sodium with a lot of these, uh, that's going to change your potassium balance. Also, some of, some of them have hyperglycemia as a side effect, too. Uh, keep in mind that you are going to want to pee a lot, so you, people need to worry about their own lifestyle. If they're in the hospital, they've got to make sure that they have the ability to get to a bathroom quickly, either with a bedside commode, if that's a better method for them, uh, or if they're working and at, at home, uh, you know, will they be able to get to a, to a bathroom uh, quickly enough? Um, they have to understand that when these are prescribed that even if they feel okay, they should continue to take them. A lot of uh, diuretics, they'll say if they're once a day, you take them in the morning so that you are then peeing while you're awake rather than taking them in the evening and then having to wake up during the night uh, to pee. Uh, because of the uh, orthostatic hypotension, if you're prone to that, uh, learn to not jump out of bed, but to move more slowly, sit on the edge of the bed first, and then, and then uh, stand up. They should weigh themselves every day, and keep in mind that if they're seeing any gains or losses, unless they're doing some kind of dieting, they need to be um, reporting that. Uh, and definitely need to report any change, signs like uh, dizziness, any difficulties in, in breathing, or if they notice any swelling occurring anywhere. And for those with the potassium deficit or wasting uh, diuretics, increasing potassium in the diet. 
So the loop diuretics, the most common is Lasix. There's others. Um, but it causes you, it's, I kind of look at Lasix like putting in a faucet into somebody and turning it on. Usually within a few minutes of giving somebody Lasix, you're going to see fluid starting to come out. Um, so they only use, generally you're going to use it for people who definitely have a lot of fluid on board that you're trying to tap out quickly. The problem is that when you make those kind of changes, you're also changing electrolyte balances very quickly, changing fluid balances very quickly, and you can, that can lead to further problems. So you really have to be very cautious when giving something like, like Lasix. If they are uh, taking digoxin, uh, you can get a uh, dig toxicity because the, the loss in potassium tends to uh, increase the, uh, the toxic effects of digoxin, so be very careful. Also, if you have anybody who's taking genomycin, they are going to more, genomycin I talked to you about as being ototoxic. It's even more ototoxic if you're taking something like Lasix. So be very careful about any aminoglycoside antibiotics. That's a big caution, red flag, and you have to think very carefully about giving those two together. Uh, another kind of very uh, more com that's it's it is less um, dramatic in its fluid loss. It's commonly given hydrochlorothiazide. Uh, it you you don't lose much potassium. You actually can lose more sodium with that, and so you have to be cautious. And generally, we don't have to tell people to have more sodium in their diets, so we usually don't worry about that too much because they rarely get into trouble with the regular diets that we, that we have. Um, it's going to be used more with somebody who has primary hypertension. So you've got somebody who's got a hypertensive disorder that doesn't have any other problems. Very, very common in the U.S. as people get older, just to have a primary hypertension, uh, no, etio no known general etiology. Uh, and so they'll take uh, hydrochlorothiazide. It's very inexpensive. Oh, you know, it's, it's uh, an easy drug to inexpensive drug for patients to, to take. Now there's also some um, little more unusual diuretics that are given in cer certain circumstances. There's mannitol, um, which is actually a, a complex sugar that, it, that will draw fluid out of um, uh, intracranial places and it will reduce interocular pressures in situations like that where you have some weird re fluid, fluid uh, retention problems. Uh, there's also aldactone, uh, which is a fairly strong uh, diuretic that, I'm sorry, mild diuretic, but it increases sodium excretion. So you do have to uh, watch for people's sodium levels and they don't need to be, in, they don't need to increase their potassium because they tend to, you have a tendency to make them hyperkalemic if they actually take extra potassium. It's also diamox, which is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. Uh, it's pretty rare. It's used mostly in treatment of glaucoma. All right. So just keep in mind, we talked about, when we talked about last Friday, everything can change, uh, every kind of illness can change fluid balances. You need to be monitoring all the time uh, as part of your regular assessments, uh, part of your initial assessment when you, when you receive a patient, and then be checking uh, every hour if they have an IV. Anybody who has an IV, you should be taking I and O, okay? So don't, if it's not ordered, even if it's not ordered, if they're on an IV, 
you should be check, keeping track of what they're drinking on top of what they're getting with their IV, and also try to keep track uh, as close as you can with the urine output. So putting things like a, a hat in the toilet to, to collect it, ask them to pee in there. So you don't have to test it, but you can just get an idea of how much they're, how much they're um, peeing. These things are hypovolemic situations are very easy to treat early, but you can get into trouble, as we learned a, a week or two weeks ago, uh, if, if it's left uh, untreated. Uh, hypervolemia is more difficult to manage, and Chris is going to be talking more about that. So thank you very much, and she'll be in at 11.